episode 253 of Britain. No, no, wait a minute. Not you. Not that one guy. You. I'm not welcoming you. The rest of you are fine. Well, the rest of you welcome. Just that one guy. I think you know who I'm talking about. Episode 253, Barry, breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Mr. Rose, I know you are still, you're still in the fucking Florida. You're enjoying the sun. How many vacation weeks do you get a year, mister? Oh, geez. I, I think I get like uh, six. I, I've been with my company for so many years now that, uh, and it's not a federal company, so I'm not capped. So I think I get like an extra so week So wait a minute, are you trying year? to say potentially you could be getting more vacation if in, the I, future, in the near future? I, it's possible, absolutely too. But I, uh, look, I'm still in Florida as we're talking about this. And I got to be honest, I am playing the lottery like no one's business because I, I don't want to go back home. I want to stick around. I don't want to leave. I'm just going to put this out there for everyone's edification. And Barry Rose, I think I may be breaking kayfabe to you. Oh. And there are things occasion that I keep from my uh, my friend Barry. All right. The time this episode comes out, the Bowdrins, myself and the sainted Kim, will be a day away from signing the contract to become homeowners again. Boom! Boom, Barry. Wow. What do you think? What do you think? Well, huge, huge I, I hate, to, I hate to like put a damper. Maybe things will fall through. That's me knocking on wood. Let's hope not. But yes, by God, finally, we have found a house, Barry Rose. You have found a house. Uh, the good news is uh, it looks like there's a lot more inventory with houses out there. So I'm also hopeful in the next year. But congrats. I know that you two have been desperately trying to find somewhere so you didn't have to continue renting. And uh, sounds from all that you've told me kind of like a dream house for you and Kim, Jeff. Well, you know, if everything goes through, first of all, the home that we are hoping to sign the papers on uh, within the next day or two at the time this episode comes out. Uh, first of all, it will be in the uh, the town of Gainesville, Georgia, former stop on the uh, Georgia championship wrestling uh, scene, Barry. Uh, you remember yes. that from the old Freddie Miller, oh, Wednesday night will be in Gainesville. Uh, you know, you got that going for you. Plus uh, the house. It's smaller than the one we're in now. So I'm downsizing at the time we recorded this, Barry. I just uh, filled an entire bag with my former work socks because I was a sock fiend the way some people are tie fiends. I had all the different socks with all the uh, cartoon characters on it. Uh, my wife had made socks of, uh, with pictures of my dog gunny on it. You know, we had all these different kinds of, socks, and I literally filled a bag with my old socks. So, uh, to, to give to the, uh, what do you call your, uh, various charity goodwills, uh, type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, lots of stuff that the Bowdrin household filled with boxes at the time of this recording. So on this particular episode, I can tell you, Barry, we're going back still more of my best of the eighties. Another match we did not cover from Tokyo, Barry, August 5th, 1982 tiger mask, Satura Sayama taking on. Tom Billington, the Dynamite Kid, a humdinger anytime these two get into the ring together. And we have a very nice discussion about that. Besides that, we're going to offer up two uh, things that we uh, had talked about previously, Barry. Top WWF, not WWE, WWF heels of the 1980s. We go year to year and look at which guy was the top heel in the Federation for that particular year. Makes for a fun discussion. And... We finish up with favorite crime shows of the 21st century. Yeah, Barry, this this century has been really good stuff with the crime uh, shows. Lots of good stuff on Showtime, HBO, all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, so makes for a fun discussion, Barry. Yeah, it does too. And there, you know, there are some great uh, things that are out there. And I should say too, if we're talking about crime and organized crime, we've lost a lot of guys over the last month that have played. Uh, 
either mob figures or crime Paul figures. Paul Sorvino. The latest. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, a time we're recording this, uh, you know, that he just recently passed. Of course, if you're listening to this, when it first comes out, you're going to say, oh, that happened a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no kidding, genius. Barry's on vacation. Anyway, that being <laughs> said, why don't we go to our match of the week as we're talking Tiger Mask taking on the Dynamite Kid. Come here, our match of the week this week. Oh, we're going back to Japan, and we are talking Tiger Mask versus the Dynamite Kid. We're talking August 5th, 1980. Another match with an anniversary, Barry. So, Barry, the thing about, as I mentioned uh, last episode, I, I found these matches from the 1980s that were part of my top 100 of the decade that we had never talked about. Uh, we've of course done other tiger mask dynamite kid matches because let's be honest, there were there, I think three of them made my top 100 because the matches between these two guys were just, they were different than anything that had ever been seen. Certainly in this country, uh, the, uh, the tiger mask character, uh, which was a very popular cartoon. Uh, they sold the rights to uh, new Japan and, uh, Satura Sayama became that character he had spent time in England as Sammy Lee. By the way, Sammy Lee videos uh, are out there on YouTube of Sayama in uh, Great Britain and in the UK. And there's some really good stuff. I think we we did a match uh, many, many episodes ago of a match between he and uh, a guy named Cyanide Sid. That was a, a really fun match uh, using, as Barry loves, the British style. And uh, and then Sayama went to uh, to Mexico. So a guy that had seen all these different styles of of wrestling and quote-unquote combat sports and of course he was a student of carl gotch so this was a guy i'm going to just put it out there that was well versed in many different styles of wrestling barry why don't you tell the folks what you thought about this match that took place in tokyo yeah was he also known as quick kick lee that was a kira maeda uh okay. kira after sammy lee uh left the uk and uh-huh. had got over huge Maeda was going on a worldwide tour. He went to the UK and he was billed as Quick Kick Lee, who I believe was either billed as Sammy Lee's brother or cousin. Gotcha. Well, thank That's you. That's a for kind of solid intel. You I was going to say anywhere, Mister. Yeah, name me another podcast. Well, that that comes up I'm with thinking. that. Yeah, not even those Japanese podcasts can come up with that because we're incorporating Japanese guys over in England. So I love it. Another question, and maybe this is best served after. This is the last one I'm going to allow you to ask. Is that I've I've hit the limit with this? (laughs) Is that where we're at? So Sayama, here was a guy that quickly fell off the radar. And I I think I had stepped back a little bit. But, you know, what exactly happened? I know in hindsight, there was a big weight gain, apparently. He was disgruntled. What what was the story? Because you've got a guy that was maybe one of the most innovative professional wrestlers ever. I mean, he's doing shit that if we saw today, we would still be super impressed. And then within a year or two, three years, he's gone. What happened? Well, uh, like a lot of guys who were trained uh, by Carl Gotch and influenced by Carl Gotch, they became uh, extremely disenchanted with the pro wrestling style uh, and, uh, you know, the whole concept, not, not just of like, you know, the, the matches being predetermined. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, stuff like, you know, drop kicks and, you know, moves off the top rope. They wanted a more uh, traditional uh, wrestling style that Gotch favored, honestly. You know, one of the things that 
when I interviewed Gotch back in the late eighties that, uh, you know, Maida was, uh, his student that was at that time was having tremendous success, uh, with, uh, promotions like the, uh, the universal wrestling federation, the Japanese version, uh, and rings and other promotions like that was Gotch was very frustrated when he would watch one of those matches and see Maida do the kicks. Okay. Because he thought those looked ridiculous, but let's be honest. Part of the reason that Maeda was over with the Japanese fans was because they thought he was like this legitimate badass, well, which I mean, he was a badass, but the whole kicking as part of his matches, that had been something that had made him extremely popular in New Japan. So when he came over and started doing more of a uh, traditional shoot-based, uh, quote-unquote, uh, style of wrestling, he still was doing the kicks because they would get huge pops from the crowd, and the crowd loved seeing him do that. Now, getting back to your question about Sayama, Sayama had gotten over, I mean, tremendously in New Japan. He'd gotten over tremendously uh, because there were, uh, let's just say, uh, allegedly uh, supposition, as we like to say, Barry, uh, <laughs> speculation, that there were some financial irregularities happening uh, within the uh, New Japan office. Yeah, it's uh, shocking, Barry, that there are financial irregularities with people that are in the uh, hierarchy of a wrestling promotion. Know anybody else that we know that are, had recently been in the news about that? Uh, we'll give you a second. Think. Mm. Mm. I can't think of anybody. But uh, so there had been some uh, stuff going on uh, involving, I think, Inoki and uh, Shinma, who was like uh, – I can't remember what his position was. I don't know if he was like the he was president, president, was yeah, yeah, president, right? So, but, but, and what happened was the the Anoki sort of took some time off because uh, you know they didn't want uh, to have him ha be forced to address this uh, stuff that was going on, and so Tiger Mask was being featured much more prominently by the promotion for a, a period of time. I don't know if it was a few months or a, you know about a six month period, but what happened was. Everyone was expecting the fans, uh, you know, and the ratings and TV and the attendance in the arenas to fall off because Anoki wasn't there. But because the character of Tiger Mask was getting over so well, the crowds not only stayed where they were, they, they actually increased a little bit because they had, you know, kids that were coming to the arena that were, uh, you know, intrigued by the Tiger Mask character. Here was this cartoon they saw and the, and the character came to life. And so what happened was, Enoki eventually comes back and now he wants to kind of, you know, put the palm down and, you know, put Sayama and Tiger Mask back to the middle of the card, which, you know, Tiger Mask at this point was like, hey, you know, like, uh, dude, I, I've been I've been drawing huge houses. TV ratings are up. Uh, houses are up because my character's over. And Enoki's like, uh, no, but you understand I'm the legend. And so we're going to do it this way, uh, you know. And so what happened was. Tiger Mask, I think, became extremely frustrated by the way that he was being used, the way he was being booked. And, of course, I'm sure he had Carl Gotch in his ear uh, telling him, you know, uh, this is not something you should accept. You know, God forbid, Barry, have you ever heard any stories about wrestlers, uh, you know, who are frustrated with the way they're being pushed, getting together and the pot being stirred? Have you ever heard that before? No, that doesn't no, happen. I know. That's something that's Come on. highly unusual in the wrestling business. Uh, but so what happened was. They decide to branch out and form the original Universal Wrestling Federation. And so they took guys that were, uh, you know, quote unquote, gotch trained guys and uh, guys that uh, were believers in this sort of style. Uh, Sayama, uh, Maeda, 
You had uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, Kazu Yamazaki, Nobuhiko Takada, guys that were uh, really great wrestlers, uh, great shooters, guys, dare I say that you wouldn't want to fuck with. Okay. And so they go and they form the Universal Wrestling Federation, of course, because New Japan has the uh, the Tiger Mask gimmick. What happens is now Sayama is billed uh, as quote unquote super tiger and sort of like, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, nudge, nudge. And so the promotion is a tremendous success initially, especially within the Tokyo area gets, you know, draws huge crowds and stuff like that. But then at some point, I want to say like a year or so later, kind of the bloom is off the rose. And I think what happened was uh, you had Shoshu had gone to, uh, boy, you're really making me remember things now, Barry. Uh, Shoshu and his group had jumped to all Japan. So now New Japan needs to bring some guys back into the fold. Maybe uh, the UWF might have been struggling at the box office somewhat. Now come on back. So your guys like Maeda, Fujiwara, uh, Takada, uh, uh, Yamazaki, and those guys. Uh, Osamu Kido also, they come back to New Japan. The only one that doesn't come back is Satura Sayama. Sayama uh, uh, has also, I believe, he wrote an expose on the business, which was just completely shocking to Japanese fans at the time, uh, you know, where he talked about the finishes being planned, uh, you know, uh, guys cooperating with one another in the ring, and he really exposed the business. And it was after that that it was pretty much over, you know, like, uh, uh, at least for that period of time, uh, Satura Sayama and his name just became a black mark on the pro wrestling industry. He, uh, as you said, begins to put on weight. He's not involved. People try to talk to him about his days and the wrestling business. He wants nothing to do with it at all. Uh, and then what happens is years later, uh, as you know, wounds are healed, uh, old grievances are forgotten about or, or are talked about and discussed and forgiven. Uh, Sayama, although he's never actually brought back into the fold, he becomes a character that you will uh, see where he, uh, he comes back and is involved with some of the minor promotions uh, that exist in Japan. uh, And he will show up at matches sometimes wearing the tiger mask hood uh, or the super tiger hood. I don't know if you've seen it. There was a famous video that was out there. I want to say about two years ago when Tom Billington was really having a lot of health problems and he was in a wheelchair and he he looked like someone who had been the victim of a stroke because he was having so many health issues. And they did like a uh, what do you call a FaceTime where uh, Sayama was calling out to him and Tom was sitting there with his wife and Sayama told him, get up, Tom, get up. You have to kick out of this. And Sayama and Billington sort of his eyes kind of opened for a second because he recognized Sayama's voice and these two old competitors, these two old opponents uh, that famously had changed the landscape of Japanese wrestling and uh, and more particularly New Japan wrestling, uh, were able to reconnect one last time uh, before we lost Tom Billington Bear. Yeah, and uh, as we're that's talking, my little history lesson about Sayama. That was a hey, this is uh, that was great, and uh, it dawned on me as I was listening and learning, and as they say, sitting underneath the education tree, uh, that I actually didn't tell you what I thought about the match <laughs> as I went right into it. So, <laughs> oh well, hell, that, people want us to give our opinion on the match too. Apparently, apparently, as you as you offer the uh, go into our Patreon lesson. episode, we'll actually discuss. <laughs> there you go. I think the history we should keep for the Patreon, right? <laughs> that, that was pretty deep stuff right there. But with that, this is so first off, it, this is a uh, a fantastic match. 
this is not the best match that these two have ever had. But with it, this is still probably better than 99% of the other matches that were taking place out there. That's the level of how good that these two were. Both guys come out of the gate 100%. It's right away. Uh, there's no, that's the beauty of this too. There's, they're not getting into an arm bar within the first 10 seconds of this match. Sayama's doing that jumping, spinning back kick that he already, he always did, which I loved. I just, you know, just such a win. They they really do a lot with this match, too. I like with Dynamite doing the Indian Deathlock. And I read a review, and it, it criticized him, and it said, that's a weak-looking Indian Deathlock. And I'm like, you know what? To see the Dynamite Kid in 1982 doing this whole, that's huge. So I actually did like that, too. Dynamite, too. And look, no wonder that Dynamite, if you've ever watched him, his style led uh, to years down the road to obviously a lot of health issues, including amputations, wheelchair bound, and eventually passing away at a relatively young age. He's doing leg drops outside the ring, which means he's landing butt first. And, a, and his issues were related to his back, if I'm correct. He's doing leg drops, and I think he does two leg drops on Sayama outside the ring. Also does the tombstone pile driver here. And I know that in a couple of their matches, he was doing, and I forget what he called it, but I I want to say, I, I remember reading in The Observer, I guess quite a few years ago, they were talking about the first person to do the Tombstone pile driver, and I, I don't remember it being Dynamite Kid, and I'm not saying it is, but certainly 1982 has got to be one of the first times anybody was doing that kind of maneuver, which is essentially a reverse pile driver in some ways. Sayama also. Well, now, does, let me just interrupt since you were yeah. on that subject. You know, the first guy that I saw do a variation of that, and maybe it was after uh, uh, this was this match took place, but didn't Morocco do some version of that? He did. And I remember reading it, reading that Morocco might have done that, even in the state of Florida in 1979. I don't remember that. But that's not saying it didn't occur. I just don't remember it. With that, I want to say Meltzer or somebody else, maybe Dr. Lucha, Steve Sims, somebody said it was a, a, a luchador that had actually done the tombstone first. Uh, but I am interested in this country, who was the first that was regularly using that hold? Again, if Morocco did it, I don't know if he was doing it on TV and let's be honest, if you worked in Florida in the 1970s, most of the television matches were not competitive. Uh, they were essentially squash matches, meaning he may have been doing this at house shows, which we didn't even call house shows back then. But I don't know. But I, you are right about Morocco. I want to say I've read that as well. Sayama does a topa, a, a tope suicida. And I got to tell you, of all the guys that do it now, and a lot of guys do it, a lot of guys do it. I think Dante Martin might be the closest, but Sayama, he doesn't touch shit. He just literally fucking takes a running leap and just flies over. And it's to me, it's incredible. You talk about literally a leap of faith for one second. If anything goes wrong, he's dead. Like there's just his tope was absolutely incredible. This is a good match. The one thing I would say is a lot of times in their matches, 
and and I don't I'm I don't know the mindset of these two guys. Like I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, Dynamite was, uh, I guess, a, a very complex guy with a really sadistic streak. And Sayama, I again, I only know what I've read. I don't really know, but it almost appears at times, and I have a feeling this is it that they were trying to one up each other. And if you've seen their matches, and how many times do they work together? Is it like ten? Give or take. Uh, yeah, if if that, if yeah. that, it's probably a little bit less, but it's somewhere right around there. And they do recycle their moves. Like you are going to see if you if you've watched the MSG match, you're going to see some of those spots in this match as well. But to their credit, they also incorporate some new shit that I don't think we've seen before. So I would highly recommend it. What I would tell you if you do some research. There is a website out there that reviews every match between these two and then has the link, whether it's on Daily Motion or YouTube, where you can watch every match. I highly recommend if you uh, if you really want to see something incredible, uh, do it in chronological order. Watch this stuff. And th- this answers that question that people seem to ask frequently. So. If someone comes over my house, what's the first match that I show them to impress them? I think you'd be doing them a disservice if you didn't show them a uh, Sayama Dynamite Kid match. So before I start with my thoughts, you know, you mentioned all the different stuff that was going on in this match. Uh, And one of the things I noted was that you literally in the space of, uh, uh, what is it, 15, 16 minutes, you get a combination of British style wrestling. You get a combination of Mexican lucha lucha spots, and then you get the New Japan stuff too. So it's really interesting how many different styles of wrestling you will see incorporated in a 16-minute match. It's absolutely amazing. So uh, right from the very start, when they're doing the ring introductions, Dynamite Kid, watch his face as he's being introduced. He's got like this sneer. Uh, you know, and we, we've talked about uh, guys going over there and we use the term just because it's a uh, a term that's been used. The, the ugly American. Well, of course, you know, Tom Billington was from uh, the UK, so he's not being the ugly American. He's being like the ugly Brit, uh, sort of a Will Ospreay uh, back in the day uh, kind of thing. But he just kind of has this like sneer on his face, uh, you know, even though the the fans you know, they, they've seen him before. They have a great deal of respect for his abilities and maybe they're fans of his, but it's like one of those, you know, when you should see flair would get his cheers at, at ringside and being the heel, he would, you know, sort of be disdainful of people that were cheering him and, and, uh, you know, put him down. You know, the other thing, as you're watching this match, this was August 5th of 1982. Barry, how old were you in 1982? Just curious. Uh, I would have been nine, either 18 or 19. Yeah, I uh, so I would have been uh, like 20 years old. I'm, I'm just sitting there trying to do the math. Uh, but you have to take into account this different than anything else anyone would have seen in this country. Like if someone had shown a tape of this match on a WWF show or on a uh, you know a show from Mid Atlantic, if CWF had shown this match on their program, you would have had people going, "The fuck did I just see? What Absolutely. was that?" You know, and it's not like you could sit there and kind of sneer and say, oh, they're doing a bunch of uh, goofy flying spots. No, because they were also doing the British style that, you know, you have talked about uh, extensively guys like Tony Charles and Billy Robinson and uh, another uh, Jeff Ports. 
the guys that it's Scott McGee that were doing a British style. So in this match, you see that incorporated into the other stuff they're doing and they're moving so much faster than anything we had seen in this country. That's like, you know, when I began getting tapes in around, uh, let's see the latter part of 1986, when I first started getting tapes from Meltzer and I would pop the tape in and I've, I've told this story before, but it's been a, a, a long while since I said it, but you know, when I, I looked at Meltzer's tape list and he had a, he had a tape and I saw it was Greg Valentine versus Kerry Von Eric. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, you know, I've never seen those guys wrestle before. And it was a, a tape of a, it was a Japanese commentary on a match that, that took place in St. Louis. And I don't know if Kerry was getting ready to go over for a tour or Greg was getting ready to go over for a tour. So they were, you know, showing this match to get the fans prepped for these guys coming over to Japan. And so I'm like going, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to see these guys that I've never seen wrestle each other. This will be really cool. And as I watched the rest of the tape, I'm going fucking Kerry and Greg was the worst match on the tape, man. What the fuck is this dynamite kid tiger mask stuff I'm seeing? Because mm -hmm. it was crazy because I literally never seen anything even close to this, especially as far as the speed of this uh, match and how crazy it was. And, you know, you sit there and you watch, you, you reference dynamite and the problems that we have later in his life with his back. Uh, and, uh, you know, geez, I, I, I want to say we even went into his spine being damaged, but then, you know, we, we've talked before about Masawa and how, when you watch a Masawa match and you see him get dropped literally on his head, knowing what eventually happened to him, you kind of just cringe. Well, in this match, you see dynamite getting thrown into the gate. And this is not like, uh, and I'm not shitting on this particular guy, but I'm just using an example. Like when you see uh, the, them throw Sting into the gate, okay, on an AEW show, you know, of course, Sting is like 60 plus years old also. But I mean, he's not taking the full brunt of his back into the gate, okay? He's protecting himself. Tom Billington is being thrown into the gate and he is taking a full on friggin' bump. And you like, you sit there and you watch it and you're like, what the hell? What the hell, man? Like, oh my God, it just looks so painful to see him do that. So before I continue with uh, the rest of my thoughts on the match, I wrote a question down, Barry, and I'm going to throw this question at you. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, I do that too. So, you know, over the course of uh, 250 plus episodes on this show now, Barry, we have talked about wrestlers inside the ring that were great wrestlers uh, outside the ring. that were good guys uh, by all accounts. And of course, we've also, also talked about guys who were kind of assholes outside the ring. So Barry Rose, who would you say fits the best combination or worst of best wrestler slash biggest asshole? And would wow. Tom Billington be the choice? I'm going to say the answer is yes. And this, boy, that's, I mean, that's an incredible, incredible question. Sometimes so quickly, I come up with them, you know, sometimes you quickly, if you start looking at the best wrestlers of that era, your guys like Ted DiBiase and Steve, Dr. Death, William Flair, Flair maybe Arn Wyndham steamboat steam. I mean, steamboat is like, he walks on water. You've never heard a negative word about him, but the, the Billington stories are out there. I would, I mean, yeah, I, I would. Again, I'd have to really give that thought. But off the top of my head, absolutely. What is the uh, and we've heard a lot. And I have one that I always stuck with because this this bothered me tremendously. What's the worst Billington story you've ever heard? And I will say, I believe I read a story. 
in Bret Hart's autobiography. I'm 95% certain it was Bret Hart's autobiography where he told a Dynamite Kid story. If not, it was uh, who else? Was it Martha Hart that wrote a book? Martha Hart wrote a book, I believe, that got no, no. I was thinking. I'm sorry. I was thinking of Diana, the one that got that. that it's Diana. You're you published, right. Then it got pulled by the printer, or yeah. Or but I got a copy of that book and I read it. So it was either it, it was a Calgary story, and it was either Brett or Diana. And uh, and I'll tell you what it is, and then give you a minute to think about what maybe the worst you ever heard. So there was a wrestler in. Calgary. He also worked to actually, I made a reference to it the other day, John Foley, also a good friend of yours, Jeff. Yes. And, uh, he was noted <laughs> exactly the same was, John Foley, by the way. No, no, that this John Foley has since passed away. was a horrific alcoholic. There are a lot of stories about him. Uh, but John Foley was, uh, I believe at one point he was J.R. Foley in Calgary at times and was also the manager. CWF also. Oh, he worked in uh, CWF. In... Dutch Mantel's partner, wasn't he? Yeah. Th- and listen to this story. Listen to how all this fucking turns around. He was Dutch Mantel's partner, and they had worked, I want to say, Knoxville, and had gotten a great push. In Florida, they were prelims only. But let me tell you, these guys were effective as a team and good. And sadly, they never went too far. Foley had worked in the Gulf Coast Territory as a member of the English Bulldogs. And this is a decade before the British Bulldogs. And they were called the English Bulldogs. It was John Foley and his partner, who was also his son-in-law named Ted Heath. And Ted Heath was a guy, uh, British as well, and had come over in small statue, much like a Les Thornton. Or stature. or stature. What are they? Statue? He's not a statue. I don't think there's a statue of him. No statute of limitations. None of that. <laughs> so he was he was a guy. He wasn't tall. He was maybe five eight, five seven, five nine, somewhere in this neighborhood. But again, like a Les Thornton, like a Tony Charles, like a Scott McGee, smaller in stature, statute, stature, and but could fucking wrestle and was built as well. And a, a really, a really good wrestler came to CWF in 1977. They put a mask on him and called him Mr. X, you know, gave a lot of thought to the name and brought him in. And he was here trying to injure Mike Graham. Somehow there was a history between the two of them. Never took off. He was unmasked and basically gone from the state after a couple of months. And it was a shame. He was really good. He was also Ted Heath, also married to the daughter of J.R. Foley. And at one point, J.R. Foley, John Foley, apparently horrible alcoholic. He was, I guess, down and out, had no money. And he went to the dynamite kid and said, we need to collect the insurance money on my daughter. and. And I've got to pull this up. I still have this book. Apparently, John Foley got the dynamite kid to come over and to physically snap the leg of his daughter to collect some sort of insurance money. And I read this story and I was like, wow, there's there's the candidate for worst father of the year. Right. Like how the fuck 
do you do that? And whether it was Brett or whether it was Diana Hart, they did not condone this by any stretch and they were extremely critical of it. But they go into great detail. And I apologize. It's been 15 or 20 years since I read these books. Uh, but that story stuck with me. Just a horrific story. But that that to me and that says a lot about John Foley as well. But for Dynamite Kid, injuring people all the time was never the issue. And even with Scott McGee and Scott loves and we had Scott on with us three, four years ago. And Scott, I believe, even told this story. Scott loved Dynamite Kid, considered him like a brother. But when Dynamite Scott, took care of Scotty after his uh, stroke. Well, he did, but you got to remember what he did. He took him in his hospital gown to a strip club <laughs> and started buying him drinks. For? Yeah, and here was a guy that, you know, a week earlier was knocking on death, death's fucking door. So I, I just think Dynamite was one of those guys. And look, I don't think you become a monster like that. I think that's pretty much ingrained from you from the get-go. So. I would say maybe his parents are responsible, you know, but in any case, Dynamite, there are few stories out there of people that uh, have great things to say about him as a, as a wrestler, revolutionary. And that's, you think about professional wrestling, I think that says a lot, because as you brought up, when that mat, the first match aired in the U.S. from MSG of Sayama versus Dynamite Kid None of us, myself, and I'll speak for me. I shouldn't say none of us. I had no idea what was going to be taking place. And within two minutes, you're sitting there going, this might be the greatest match I've ever seen. I, I've never seen anything ever like this. It was revolutionary. And that says a lot. Yeah. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll post a, a poll in the group about, uh, uh, or not, not a poll, but we'll put the question in the group, like uh, other candidates for guys that were, you know, J.R. Foley. Uh, you know, of course, you know him from uh, doing your research on CWF, maybe seeing him in, in CWF. But, you know, uh, the Dynamite Kid was a much bigger name in the oh, wrestling absolutely. business than, than J.R. Foley was for sure. So, uh, but, I mean, it's certainly something that is uh, worthy of, of discussion to see. Uh, you know, uh, getting back to the match real quick. One thing about the Dynamite Kid was in his matches, he could be really stiff with his shots. But... In fairness, he expected you, you know, he was one of those guys, he would give it to you. And if he gave it back to him, he understood that was part of the match. And so he didn't have a problem with you giving it back to him. I don't know if you noticed, Barry, on commentary at ringside is Antonio Inoki uh, giving a little bit of rub to the match here with, uh, you know, to show how important it is that the great Inoki is sitting at ringside uh, offering commentary, sticking his chin out, if you will, uh, at the match. Uh, that's a little <laughs> See what joke you did there. there. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, another question I, that I had for you, you know, we talk about how flair and steamboat were like a perfect marriage of opponents. Uh, and especially, you know, when they first started wrestling each other, uh, 77, 78 or around that time period and how they each, although flair at that point was becoming a huge star already, uh, in mid Atlantic, you know, they put him with steamboat, the young, good looking baby face, he gave the rub to Steamboat, but Steamboat, and in all his abilities, let's be honest, gave some rub to Flair, too, and elevated Flair's in-ring uh, game. So using that comparison, can you think of any two other guys that basically, at a certain point in time, became perfect opponents for one another? Mm. And I, I, I like Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr. Uh, yeah. At the time that was happening, they were the perfect opponents for one another. 
Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, taking into account, too. So if you look at guys and I, I would say the first thing I would do, you would look at guys like the Sheik and Bobo Brazil. Right. And granted, the quality of matches, this is not you know, this isn't at the level of uh, of what Sayama and Dynamite Kid or anybody you just mentioned were having. But how many times did the Sheik and Bobo work together over the course of, I'm going to guess, three decades and there's a reason for that because they knew how to work together to get the type of reaction. And whether that reaction from the crowd was a reaction of excitement, the ultimate goal is to get you to come back the following week and buy a ticket. And that's where I think that they succeeded with that. I like that. I think uh, Bill Dundee, Jerry Lawler, if Good you're one. looking at long term in this state of Florida, and then I'll quantify this as well. You had Sherry Lee and Bonnie Watson, both, uh, you know, two of the top. Bonnie Watson at the time was married to Stu Schwartz. She has since passed on. Stu has passed on as well. Uh, and Sherry Lee was in a relationship with somebody who was a running CWF. So they were essentially homesteaders. So over the course of about 25 to 30 years, they must have worked together hundreds of times. And, and there's others, I'm sure. Uh, well, I, I tell you, I, I came up with Eddie Graham and, uh, and Malenko. Malenko. Yeah. Uh, Von Erickson, Freebirds. For the period in, in time, uh, they just were instantly magic with one another. Dusty it, Terry it, Funk. Exactly. You know, it, Dusty had a few guys that he created that magic with. And quite frankly, that's why he had such a, a long run as a, as a baby face and got himself from Florida all over the country. Uh, you know. Uh, other, I'm sure there are other guys, eh? Vern and Nick Bockwinkle, Vern and Billy Robinson had magic together, you know, Hogan and, uh, Paul Orndorff had magic together when they, you know, when they first popped the, uh, the Federation. So you got to give them credit for that. Uh, Hogan and Randy Savage had magic together too. There are yeah. just some guys that they come along, uh, with the, the right opponent at the right time and they create magic together. And that's what, uh, DK and, uh, Tiger Mask did, uh, as we talk about this match. So uh, there was, uh, before I get to the finish of this, there's a great moment in the, in the, the match. You know, people talking about moves that expose the business and, uh, and stuff that happens during a match where you go, oh, that's just. A so, Barry, tell me what you thought about the moment in the match when uh, Tiger Mask goes into the ropes. He's going to give a flying body press to uh, the Dynamite Kid and Dynamite just turns and walks to the right <laughs> and Tiger Mask misses the body press. I mean, it was obviously a planned spot, but. Imagine in 1982 what the reaction. Do you know? Remember the move I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even think about it because I I did take it as a, a planned spot. So yeah. yes. So, uh, but any, like at the time, it's not the sort of thing. Let's just say that you would have seen in a lot of different areas. So I thought that was interesting. So what happens is Tiger Mask 16 minute mark uh, gets the uh, the pen with a a top rope press. Uh, the notation I made sort of similar in manner to what you would see Jay Youngblood do, where he would jump across his opponent's body on the mat, give him the chop and get the pen. Uh, Buddy Landell with the corkscrew elbow, he would go across the person's body. That's what uh, Tiger Mask does here as he goes across from the, you know, from I think the middle rope. I don't think it was from the top rope, but he goes across Dynamite's body and hits him with the body press, gets the pen. 16 minutes. This was in my top 100 of the 1980s was not in my top 10. They did have a match, I believe from April of 1983. Uh, Barry, if you recall, we talked about that's the one that has the famous spot where dynamite breaks the bottle at ringside. Oh and, yeah. And threatens tiger mass with the bottle at ringside. That was, uh, 
I want to say April 2nd of 1983. I have absolutely no idea why that kind of stuff sticks in my mind. Ask me what I had for dinner last night. Forget about it. But by God, I remember that match that Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask had that was in my top five. We'll post a link to this match. Holy shit. Check this out because this is really good stuff. Completely revel. I'll use Barry's word. Completely revolutionary stuff at the time this match came out in August of 1982. Check it out. Very never a bad time to do a little wrestling talk. I think you'll agree. I stumbled across this article from the uh, Sportster website. Barry, the best WWE heel every year during the 1980s. Oh, it was a glorious time at Witchies. Uh, well, before they expanded, then they kind of stopped going to Witchies. But what they're doing is they're taking a look at every year during the decade and who the best heel was in the WW at the time, WWF. So Barry, let's start off with 1980. What's your guess? Who was the lead heel for the entire year of the WWF? <sighs> 1980. And I don't know this. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll say Ken Patera without really knowing Larry Zabisco. Oh, all right. A former guest at our CWF legends fan fest. Barry can't believe he didn't do that. Zabisco legendary run, uh, that year. But as I'm, uh, as I'm thinking here, did Zabisco, while he had the incredible feud with Bruno, which, you know, just was holy crap, just set the business on fire that year, but he never had the run in the garden with Backlund, did he? I, I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't really know though, but I don't think so. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, the turn on Bruno just, uh, it was like basically taking, uh, some bait, putting it on the, on the hook throwing it in the water and slowly beginning to reel it back in because they did a slow burn on this. It was excellent. And then when he finally turned on Bruno, hit him across the head with a chair, uh, Bruno with the, uh, the fully, uh, Afroed Bruno San Martino as he was getting a little bit older, the hair was thinning Barry, but, uh, yeah, it was such a, a big monumental turn. And then of course, uh, they ended up with the Shea stadium show. Great stuff. Number nine, Barry on the list of top 10, this would be for 1981. They're doing it like top 10, but it's basically going through each year. Number uh, 1981's best WWF heel veteran of CWF rings. Barry, who do you think it is? 1981 Pat Patterson. Let me get Howard Baum on the phone ah. because it is the magnificent one, Don Morocco. And holy crap, was Don Morocco on fire, not just here, but previously uh, in Florida. And after this run, I think, is when he went to uh, Georgia and had a great run there. Uh, wow, Don Morocco was on fire here, Barry. Don Morocco, and, and we we talk about Don Morocco all the time. Easily one of the greatest heels to ever step into a ring. I also think one of the greatest baby faces. Don Morocco should be in every single Hall of Fame for professional wrestling. So should Don Morocco have gotten a run with the belt, the big belt? I, I think so. I, I even, you know, I'll never understand the Iron Sheik. Uh, I certainly get the qualifications. He certainly had a great personality. But at the same time, the Iron Sheik was a guy that never had this amazing massive run before he became champion. And, you know, that's certainly debatable what happened afterwards. I think giving it to Morocco and maybe they didn't want to, maybe they, maybe the Morocco was protected to some degree, but I think giving it to Morocco would have been, in my opinion, a better decision. 1982, Barry, Greg, the hammer Valentine. 
So a lot of people think he is one of the greats of all time. For some reason, I've never fully connected with Valentine. I, I just have not. Uh, and I don't know if I didn't see him enough. I don't know what it is. Maybe I do have to go back and look at some of his matches. But look, you can't argue with success. This guy was on top in the Federation for many years. So I will now give you a slight spoiler alert. We've now done 1980, 1981, 1982. And Ken Patera did not win in this article's estimation uh, heel of the year in any one of those years. What do you think? Is that a mistake? I think so, because I think he was such an impressive heel. Uh, Great heel persona, looked like a million dollars and could actually work in the ring. I I didn't see a flaw in his game when he was at the top of his game. Yeah, Uh, I will agree with you uh, on Greg Valentine. I know there are a lot of uh, guys, uh, my friends on Front Row, uh, Section D in Greensboro, Absolutely loved Greg Valentine uh, for what he did in Mid-Atlantic, the whole I broke Wahoo's leg, uh, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, he, to me, was a guy that was like eh, semi-made event level on a really good card, but I never saw him as a guy that was the reason you were coming into the building. He was a reason to stay in the building, but he wasn't the guy that got you in the building. Do you see what I'm saying there? Absolutely, yep. Yeah. So, 1983, heel Sergeant Slaughter. I yeah, that's and that's a good one too. In, in a lot of ways, Slaughter was a top guy working for Crockett. Uh, you know, you you had and, and with the beauty of Slaughter, we've always said it. He could work with uh, Kernodal. He could work with uh, Jim Nelson. But whatever it was, Slaughter was making these guys bigger and better. So Slaughter, a guy on top for Crockett as a tag team goes to the Federation, has this great program with Backland, uh, absolutely deserves to be uh, the number one heel. And then the next year became like, uh, outside of Hogan, like their lead babyface, yes. you know, in the run with the Iron Sheik. So yeah, just an incredible run for Slaughter, a guy that I have, you know, when we discussed various uh, quote-unquote Hall of Fames, uh, a guy that I think uh, for the run he had there, uh, then he goes, uh, you know, he, he was the action figure guy, really, maybe even before, uh, you know, it's arguable, like whether him or Hogan would have been more of an action figure kind of guy. But, you know, he was the one that uh, fought against the fact that, you know, uh, he felt he deserved more money uh, for for the action figures, for all that other stuff, caused him to leave to go to the AWA. He, uh, for a moment at least, propped up the AWA. But then he comes back as the, uh, the Iraqi sympathizer and has another run with Hogan as the Iraqi sympathizer. Uh, and whether you agreed with, uh, that particular, you know, uh, direction of the company or not, because it was very controversial. The fact is that slaughter was the one that was, you know, at the forefront of that getting over the, uh, the angle with Hogan, uh, it was an incredible run and the guy absolutely should be a hall of famer. There's no question about it, but 1983, yeah, not just, uh, I mean, we're, we're only talking WWF here, but, you know, he had the incredible run as the tag team partner of Don Carnodal in the feud against Steamboat and Youngblood. But, uh, yeah, but then when he came back to the WWF, he had the run where he hits Bob Backlund across the back with the riding crop and led to big business. Uh, now, Barry, 1984, you mentioned him briefly before. It is the Iron Sheik, Sheiky Baby. Yeah, Sheiky Baby. <coughs> Pardon me, too. Sheiky Baby. uh and he was fine for the transition of champion and WWE WWF was always known for this, whether it was a guy like Stan Stasiak, who I think had it for a week 
uh, you know, Koloff, who had it for a little bit longer, but they, they were always known for transitional champions of bridging between one baby face to another, whether it's Bruno to Pedro, vice versa, whatever it is. And Iron Sheik was the right guy. This was the stage two where WWF was transitioning from more wrestlers over to talent as, as far as personalities. And while the Iron Sheik, I mean, my God, the guy was a fantastic amateur wrestler. He was a really strong personality as well. And, uh, I, you know, he and Nikolai together, I think, you know, I, I think that's probably his greatest success in a sense because uh, the championship, I think he held the title for a month, right? Wasn't it like one MSG card to another or something like that? Yeah. yeah, but his run with Nikolai Volkov went on for quite a while. So, yeah, just a solid guy. I, I don't – was he the top heel, though? Like, legit the top heel in 84? I don't, I don't know. I think I could make a case for a few other names, though, Jeff. Well, so here's a question. Uh, I don't know if I've ever asked you this before. So one of the standard booking philosophies of Vince Sr. was if you got over, he would give you that run in Madison Square Garden. If you got over, you know, really good, you'd get like, you know, maybe three shots at the title in the garden. Uh, You had your guys that maybe had one appearance in the garden that, you know, it wasn't as well received. Uh, And then you had guys that, for whatever reason, never got that shot in the garden, like we were talking about Zabisco, because the uh, feud with Bruno was so all-encompassing. So, did Vince Jr., in hindsight, do you think that he should have kept that up, at least initially with Hogan, where uh, in Hulk Hogan's first match, and I am doing hindsight uh, wrestling history, because, of course, Hogan got over huge. I I realize that while I'm asking this question. But should they have done something where instead of having Hogan, after he won the belt, Hogan's the champ, instead of just lining guys up for Hogan to beat within five or ten minutes, should they have done something where they had Hogan, you know, first first match in the garden, if it gets over, uh, let's just, uh, we'll use, uh, oh, uh, who was, uh, I'll just use, like, uh, Greg Valentine, okay? (coughs) So Greg Valentine uh, is over huge. Hogan's over huge. The first match, they do like a, you know, uh, double count out, something like that. Uh, Second match, um, they do a bit where uh, Hogan gets counted out of the ring or there's a disqualification, something like that, which sets up the third match, which is then the, uh, whether it's a cage match or a Texas death match, sort of the same method of booking and promoting that they did with Backlund. Should they have done that with Hogan? Or in order to get Hogan over as the superhero type, should they have done exactly what they did, which was to basically for the first year have him go into Madison Square Garden, take the hottest heel, and basically beat him with the leg drop in five or ten minutes? Yeah, so that actually makes a lot of sense too. And look, it, it, a lot of it, I, I would especially think in the uh, in the early days of the Federation, when when Vince Jr. not Senior, when Vince Jr. was uh, was running the show, it is going to be all about numbers, and it's going to be, you know, to my opinion, it's going to be less about. Uh, work rate, good matches, et cetera. It's going to be about dollars. It's going to be about dollar, which the way, you know, it's a business, right? So of course, maybe, yeah. right. So maybe it should be, there was always the formula and it made sense to me, you know, that as you just said, you go through first match, maybe it's a count out second match, maybe a DQ third match, which would be the blow off. Maybe it's a steel cage or something like that. That would have made a lot of sense to me. I, I, I think I actually, as much as I didn't enjoy the WWF at that stage, because I felt it was very cartoonish. 
at the same time, the philosophy of what was making them successful seemed to be working though, right? Like, obviously I'm not the target audience and that I shouldn't be, but at the same time, their target audience, whoever they were going for, they were booking for them. And I think they were doing it correctly, Jeff. Yeah. And obviously, uh, when you talk about the target audience, the target audience went from wrestling fans to kids, let's be honest, you know? And so in that sense, having Hulk Hogan as this like indestructible baby face, uh, that, you know, like, uh, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, all that kind of stuff. You know, Hulk Hogan wasn't going to go out and have a 30 minute match with anybody. Let's be honest. And quite frankly, I don't think any of us wanted to see that. So 1985, Barry, this might've been the guy you were thinking about. It's Roddy Piper. Yeah. So I was thinking 84, maybe it was, but maybe 85 is when he really exploded. Boy, no, no argument there whatsoever. I, everyone will say this and it is accurate, but if Hogan didn't have a great foil, a great heel to work off in the beginning to set himself up, I don't know how things would have played out. My God was Roddy Piper, the right guy. So I will give credit to the writer of this article. He says something that's very true. He says in 1985, Piper was the Joker to Hogan's Batman. Sure. Boy, will Chris Z get a rise out of that. Uh, he was the perfect heel at the perfect time for the perfect baby face. And that's absolutely spot on because, uh, you know, the, the, every, uh, as they say, every man has his one moment in time, uh, you know, where it's his time. And for Roddy Piper, this was his time. He was ready for it. The years he had put in working small territories, uh, you know, that we had just recently talked about working in places like L.A. and Portland before moving to Charlotte and then Georgia and then going to the Federation. And boy, he was absolutely the man of the moment and he was perfect for the time. Next, 1986, a man that I thought might have been mentioned in a previous year, but I forgot that in 1986 we had the return to heel form of the man they call Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. And it was the time when he was teaming up with uh, with Hogan, I believe against, uh, was it uh, Stud and Bundy? And he turns on him with the big clothesline after the match. And Jesse is, <laughs> and Vince is like, you knew it all along, Jesse, you knew it all along. And that was, I think, one of my favorite all-time WWE angles, Bear. Yeah, so it, I like that too. And uh, Orndorff was, what a stud. Orndorff was in his heyday. And uh, he's a guy that I, I, you and I have talked about it. I always felt in the right, the right booking, uh, if things had played out differently, could have been an NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. Very uh, yeah, yeah. He had the look and he had the in-ring ability and just seemed to have the psychology of a guy that I think would have made a really good NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. I have no problem with having Orndorff on this list. He uh, That heel turn, first the babyface turn, which uh, had taken place several months earlier, but then that heel turn was really impactful. He did a great job. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Hogan and, and Orndorff, ended up uh, on a, uh, a show that was not a pay-per-view, uh, just a, a show that was booked in Toronto at the Sky Dome. They did like 65, 70,000 people for, a, for wow. a show. I mean, that's how, yes, that's the power of Hulk Hogan, but that's also the power of his foil, which was Paul Orndorff and how over Paul Orndorff was after the turn. And uh, I also want to mention, it was not, a, I don't believe it was in 86, I think it was back in 84, but Barry, we, many, many, many episodes before we talked about the uh, 
the skit in the gym with Mr. Wonderful teaching the kids how to work out properly. <laughs> yeah, oh my crazy. God. That was just absolute gold. That's gold, Jerry gold. Yeah. You know, like don't ever put your hands on Mr. Wonderful. You'll never be as wonderful as I am. That was just, so number, uh, next on the list, Barry, 1987, Andre, the giant and the heel turn of Andre in this country. I guess so. I, I, I guess if you're looking, look, Andre's work by 87 had dramatically dropped off. He was, uh, I know he was having trouble even walking. Uh, it didn't look good. Uh, you know, just couldn't even do a lot in the ring, but the legend, the, the legend of Andre, the giant was huge. It still is to this day. He's been gone for almost 30 years. I think he's been gone at this point and the legend of Andre still exists. It is, you know, he'll, he's bigger than professional wrestling in a lot of ways. So while he couldn't do a lot, the significance of a guy that in this country had always been a baby face to now be a heel. And again, you know, you go back to the, the, the seventies or maybe the early eighties and you, you could say it's Andre, it's dusty Rhodes, Maybe it's Bruno, you know, baby faces, Andre was always in that conversation of top three for a decade. Andre was always in the conversation of top three baby face in the U S and loved. So for him to turn heel was shocking. I would say yes, just based off of the aura of Andre. Absolutely. And you know, the one thing that a lot of people didn't realize was how successful uh, as a heel he was in Japan, uh, you know, in the latter part of the seventies into the early eighties, right. uh, you know, when he was monster, uh, Rusimov, uh, over there in Japan, when he, I think when he first debuted over there, he was a huge deal. And, uh, you know, the fact that he would come over and be so beloved here in the United States, but when he did finally turn, it was such an impactful thing. And, you know, again, a man for his time. And that was the time to, uh, to turn him. And, you know, we talk about, uh, the health issues and the, the back issues that were just basically almost immobilizing him, uh, to a certain extent. Think about the fact that because he was such a big deal and a big star, all the shows and all the, uh, you know, the tours he had to make, uh, not just in the United States, but in, uh, God, he went to Mexico, he went to Japan and with his back issues and because of his size, Think about how hard that must have been for him to like get on planes, uh, to sleep in a, a hotel room with a bed that wasn't big enough for him, and you know to get in cars that you know he couldn't fit into. In a lot of ways, it was a great life, but in a lot of ways, it was a very sad life too. Yeah, it was a very sad life, and you know we we always saw Andre, especially in the seventies, and we we always saw him as this larger than life figure who must be living this great life, right? And then you you start to hear the stories of how he has trouble flying and how he can't get into a bed and uh, and the physical toll. And I remember hearing something in the seventies, and it was another wrestler actually said it uh to us one night and he said you know andre's been told he only has a couple of years to live and that was a story i i want to say was repeated later on in life i remember i think maybe Meltzer's obituary maybe he talked about it andre had been told he wasn't going to live too long and for some i i've heard that was the reason for the excess that he's like if i'm gonna fucking die i'm gonna enjoy every moment that i have at the same time it does sound like the last few years of his life were just miserable. Like he was just in constant pain, racked with pain, could barely walk. 
at times wasn't able to walk and had to be in a wheelchair. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think we look at it as like, okay, it's glamorous, right? It's, it's professional wrestling. Andre's a millionaire or, or at least close to it. In reality, he's just super unhappy because of his health issues, which yeah. is really sad. It is. And, you know, uh, uh, as I said, a life that was uh, filled with so much uh, excess. Also, you know, there's always the yang with the yang. Right. And, you know, for all his excesses and all the partying and the fun he had, there was also uh, those times when, you know, because of his size and, and everything else that he was, you know, alone. That's part of the reason why he drank so much was because right. at some point he was going to have to go back to that hotel room where the bed wasn't big enough where, you know, accommodations weren't going to be big enough. And so that was part of what led to his lifestyle. So next, Barry, 1988, it is the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, a man who was brought in, and boy, did I hate when he left the UWF, but in hindsight, I certainly understand why. But he basically was given the gimmick of being Vince McMahon. <laughs> I mean, I was, right. that's a gimmick that wasn't going to fail, Bear. Yeah, it definitely wasn't going to fail. And uh, let's be honest, too. DiBiase, who uh, this was as far away from his gimmick as you could ever get coming from the UWF, really took the ball and ran with this. And this is what a guy who understands the psychology of professional wrestling and DiBiase's a lifer born into the business. He took the ball and he ran. But this is where I think the Federation really excelled. And it was doing the skits and the million dollar man skits. Much like in a couple of years, what would have been the Kurt Hennig skits, but even, you know, Morocco and Fuji, right? Fuji Vice. Fuji Vice, yes. It's like the greatest thing ever. I could sit and watch this all day. Terry Funk in the Western (coughs) Bar with Vince and. uh, Now, see, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I didn't. uh, And I I hated the Dusty Road stuff. Oh, Uh, you know, that I hated, yeah. Which you had to hate, you know, because they basically were just devaluing him. But I I think the Million Dollar Man, the way that they did those and the way he actually performed in those, that that really set the tone. I don't think he had to even wrestle and probably didn't wrestle for a couple of months as these skits were taking place. When he finally did make make his debut, totally hated heel, right, based off of these skits. So I think that they were genius. And the Million Dollar Man... The way he went out of professional wrestling, I want to say he left the Federation and got injured, and that was like the extent of it. He's he's legendary. I mean, the guy gave us more high-quality matches, really, than just about anybody else, right? So, I'll put you on the spot. Better skit of the Million Dollar Man kicking the basketball out of the kid's hand <laughs> yes. or kicking the kids out of the pool, or have I missed one? I would say it was kicking the basketball because I, that's the one I remember. And I remember they reunited the kid with DiBiase years later. I thought that was great. I I think those skits are priceless though. The character was so great as a heel that he even got Virgil over. (laughs) Well, there you go. So, and by the way, speaking of that, did you hear that Virgil was out giving crap to Ted DiBiase because he did not reach out to, uh, to Virgil when Virgil announced he had some sort of, uh, uh, I don't was it cancer or something like that? And he's upset that Ted DiBiase in real life hasn't reached out to him. Yeah, I, I don't know. I know that, uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, maybe DiBiase is angry that Virgil has been at, at FanFest that he shows up to. It says like, Ted DiBiase and Virgil 
And then it's just Virgil sitting there and DiBiase's nowhere to be found. So I almost feel like it's almost a bait and switch kind of thing. It's deceptive. Wait a minute. Are you trying to say Virgil has a little bit of carny to him? I, he's got a lot of carny to him. And I, <laughs> I think maybe Ted may be upset about that. I don't know that, but who knows, right? So final name is 1989, Barry. It's the Macho Man. 100%. I, Macho Man was so great. I think we even give him a couple of years where he wasn't even in the Federation because he was one of those guys that came into the Federation. There wasn't a lot of great things happening, at least in my eyes. Macho Man comes in. Everything that's taking place is all of a sudden elevated. I just thought that he was just incredible. Huge so, fan. yeah, this whole skit of Randy Savage giving credit where it's due, Hulk Hogan. And Miss Elizabeth, that whole triangle there, uh, you know, the uh, that Randy thought he was trying to steal Liz away and that storyline. Then the eventual, you know, he ends up with Sherry Martell, who was fantastic as his yes. manager, by the way. Uh, but then they, uh, I, I can't remember what year it was, where Randy's wrestling and then they show Liz in the audience. And she's been not on camera, at least for a while, but now she's there and Something happens where where uh, Sherry turns on Randy and and they show the camera on Liz and she's kind of biting the lip and and then she runs into the ring and starts attacking Sherry Martell. Oh my God, Barry, that was unbelievable and that was absolute WWE storytelling and storylines, absolutely perfectly done. Yeah, and we were critical, or at least I was, of uh, of just of Miss Elizabeth that I. It, this is going back to the early episodes. I just never felt like she offered a lot. But the counterpoint to that, which somebody pointed out, and I do agree with it, was that that was the role she was supposed to be playing, is that she was supposed to be deer in the headlights, and then she would be a foil for the heels. And the heels were the ones that were essentially carrying that entire deal. And then, of course, you had the ambiguity. You like the like that? Yeah, very ambiguity. nice use of that word. Ambiguity of babyface Liz and heel macho together. So, uh, so it, look, it worked. While, while I don't think, you know, at times I don't feel that she added a lot. I think that's what she was supposed to be doing. So she added through subtraction in a sense. Well, and I, I'd always read that it was supposed to be almost like a caveman gimmick. Like he was the caveman and she was the girlfriend that he sort of figuratively, you know, dragged by the hair around with him. You know, she always had to be seated at, no, I don't want you here. I want you in this chair right here in this corner. And, you know, that's the way it kind of works. So now that we've taken a look at the entire decade, Barry, tell me, first of all, is Patera the guy they missed or is there somebody else that you're thinking that should have been on this list also? I think the mass superstar, I think you could have made a case. I think that was 83, if I'm right, okay. where the mass superstar was a top contender for Backlund. Uh, I believe he uh, injured Eddie Gilbert storyline angle, but they really put over the mass superstar. And of course the mass superstar, he couldn't be bad. He couldn't have a bad match if he tried, right? Yeah. This guy was always money. He was always there. Who was it in 83 again? Um, 83 was slaughter slaughter, but you know, slaughter is great, right? I, I think superstar should have gotten a look. And I think Patera definitely should have gotten a look. So, now that you've seen all 10 years listed, who is the best heel of the entire decade? I, 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 I'll tell you what, I'll rephrase it. Which heel that was mentioned on this <laughs> list yes. had the best year of any heel? 
I'd have to go through it. I would say it's hard to argue with Macho Man's success because he came in, made this immediate impact, and was kind of unlike anything we had ever seen on a national level before. So I I like him a lot. Uh, I'll go through the list real quick for you. You got Zabisco, Morocco, Valentine, Slaughter, uh, Iron Sheik, Piper, uh, Orndorff, Andre, DiBiase, and Savage. Really some great choices. Morocco, Slaughter, and Piper all stand out to me. Morocco, impact was huge. Slaughter, the impact was huge. I think Piper's impact, though, was uh, was history-changing in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Piper's kind of an obvious choice. Uh, and, you know, the amazing thing is uh, that he wasn't there early and he wasn't here there late, but in the middle, he crammed so much impactful content that uh, I think he's your obvious winner. Barry, you know, we always love a good talk about television here on the old Breaking Kayfabe of Audrey and Barry. Barry, I now offer you from the uh, pages of Collider.com the top 10 most loved crime shows of the 21st century. Yeah, we're going topical on this one, Mr. Rose. So right off the top of your head, what's number one going to be? On crime shows? Actually, now that I say this, they don't have it listed. uh, They just have 10 shows. They don't have one that's particularly number one. But what would you say your number one would be? I, I guess Law and Order, and I don't know which version. I like, you know, I like them all. I would say Law and Order's got to be on there. I don't know if they're going to break it down between different versions. I'll tell you a story, a one that I think is completely underrated. It was Crime Story, and that was the show with Dennis, Dennis Farina. Farina. Yeah, yeah, that I thought that was fantastic. But yeah, there's been, I mean, my God, how many crime shows has there been on TV in the last thirty to forty to fifty years? Uh, Barry, uh, have you heard about a little thing called Breaking Bad? Oh, yes, I have. Uh-huh. Slip right past you there, Mr. Yeah, Rose. It did. it did. So let's start off on their list. The first one they mentioned, Barry, have you ever seen the show Mindhunter? I have. Fantastic. Uh, I believe it's on either Netflix or Prime. I think it's only two seasons, if I'm correct. And it says here 2017 through 2019. So it was two seasons, I believe. And they're... I believe they are working on a new season, but it's been pre- prior to COVID. I thought this was great. This show also, Jeff, and I don't know if you've seen it, right up your wheelhouse. It's essentially uh, getting in the mind of serial killers. And it's the what? formation of, I guess, within the FBI, uh, the division that actually tracks serial killers. Well, not not that I want to say we're fans of serial killers, but no. television shows about serial killers are right in our wheelhouse. I will tell you, Barry, on the old Rotten Tomatoes, Got a 97%. Wow. Uh, yes. And uh, surprisingly, only a 6.6 on IMDb, which uh, uh, you would think something that got a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes would have got a higher IMDb score. But uh, yes, no, as you said, it's about two FBI agents uh, who interview um, criminals who try to get in their mind. It, much like, you know, it, this is called uh, Mindhunter. Of course, Manhunter, uh, the movie uh, that came out, yeah, what was it, Barry, now, like in the 80? 80s or 80 Manhunter would have been 86, I believe. Yeah. And that was the, uh, the very, very first movie that, uh, you heard about the character, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who in that movie was played by Brian Cox, not, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. So, but yeah, this, uh, I've, I've never seen an episode, but I've heard good things about it. We mentioned uh, breaking bad from a 2002 to three, 2008, 
Certainly, I would say in the, I'm going to say top five uh, TV shows of all time, Barry, it's David Simon's The Wire. Yeah, so again, you have seen every episode, can discuss. I, I'm only partway through it. My goal at some point is to, and I'm finishing up Yellowstone. I think I'm actually getting close to the ending, sadly. But you need I to set go to higher wire. goals. You yeah, you know what it is, goals. too? I, 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 The Wire is something that I tried to watch, and for one reason or another. But again, there's a lot of people whose uh, opinions I respect that have called this the best show ever to air on television. And, you know, what this is that for anyone who's never seen it, like Barry Rose, uh, it's an investigation of basically the disintegration of the urban uh, environment of the city of Baltimore, Maryland, in the early 2000s because of the, the drug trafficking. What's fascinating is you don't just look at it from the point of view of the cops or the prosecutors or the drug dealers. This shows you every single avenue which uh, got the drug trade involved uh, the way that, uh, you know, quite frankly, the the, uh, inequality in the neighborhoods, uh, the police brutality that was going on. They take you one season, spends the entire season down on the docks in the harbor of Baltimore and shows the drugs coming in, how they get the drugs in under the nose of uh, the authorities and get them distributed out to the dealers. And I, that's one thing that I really found fascinating. Then, like, there's another season where they focus on the newspapers and the coverage of the crime in the communities and how the newspapers are impacted. It really is incredibly powerful showing how, you know, all these different things sort of collide and affect the, the town of Baltimore. And, of course, uh, very famously, you have the, uh, the character of uh, Omar Little, Played by my, I just thought, I forgot his name. It's Michael. Um, he passed away not too long ago. Um, Chalky. Omar. Yeah, yeah, Chalky White from uh, Boardwalk Empire. Uh, Lou, help me out here. But uh, Omar Little, one of the great characters, uh, as a guy uh, in the neighborhood whose sole purpose is to steal uh, Michael K. Williams. Thank you, Lou. Uh, Omar's uh, sole purpose is to steal from the drug dealers. He steals your drugs, he steals your cash. And so he's sort of like this anti-hero and he's a fascinating character. And Michael K. Williams was absolutely iconic and amazing. And the fact that not only was he tremendous in that, but then he became, as you said, Chalky White in Boardwalk Empire, another iconic character, just shows you what a tremendous actor Michael K. Williams was, Bear. He really was, too. And, he, you know, he did so much. And for years, I don't think we knew what his name was. The Wire, I think, really put him over the edge. He'll always be chalky to me. And again, as you had mentioned, we lost him a few months ago to a uh, a drug overdose. Really talented actor, and his strength was believability. This was never a guy that I ever watched and ever said, oh, this guy's acting. It just appeared uh, what he was doing. Just absolutely fantastic, though. Huge fan. And I'll tell you what, I just need a little more time, Jeff, and I can start watching The Wire. We're going to invest, uh, ask you to invest a little more time, uh, quite frankly, in this uh, fine award-winning podcast, Barry, because that, that's you, know, fair. you, you sure. don't do enough okay, well, with the voluminous salary that you earn here. Six-figure salary. For exactly. Doing yeah. So, uh, Barry, next on our list from 2013 through the present, still going on, Bear. Barry, have you ever had a chance to watch the British crime drama Peaky Blinders? No, and I've always wanted to. Tom Hardy uh, in the show, big Tom Hardy fan from the Mad Max uh, uh, film, but he, uh, it, it, 
I've heard such tremendous things about this. And again, this is I've got a list of like 10 shows I got to see. Peaky Blinders is right there. Uh, Cillian Murphy. I believe uh, is the star of the show and just absolutely nothing but rave reviews. It's about the rise of uh, the mob in uh, the 1920s in uh, great Britain. And it's supposed to be absolutely, I think I've watched one episode. Uh, there was a time I want to say I was on Christmas break from work and I looked at like five different shows and I said, okay, I'm going to watch one of these shows all the way through. And so I watched the first episode of all these shows and I really like Peaky Blinders. I just, for whatever reason, picked the, uh, one of the other shows and followed sure. that through. But I got to go back to it. There's no question about it. Next, Barry talked about it at the beginning, at the opening of this segment, 2008 to 2013. Oh, Barry, it is Vince Gilligan's amazing Breaking Bad. It's hard to believe as you're saying that, and it's been nine years since that season finale, which, you know, a lot of times I can't tell you what I did yesterday, but I can tell you almost every second and every frame of that of that uh, series finale. And, you know, it just breaking bad again. People will say not to be confused with breaking kayfabe, by the way, Barry. No, no. Our ratings are higher, but it's true. Breaking bad, the wire, Twilight Zone, Sopranos. Uh, and I think you put Better Call Saul. These are the shows that come up in greatest in conversations of greatest TV shows of all time. So I, I just I'll always say I don't think I, I do think from what I've seen, Breaking Bad may be the greatest show of all time. My favorite will always be The Twilight Zone. But with that, Breaking Bad never had a dog in every episode. Every single episode was good. The only episode I can tell you in which everybody says that you can find fault with, in my opinion, is the one with the fly. And uh, I, I, you know, I think that was something that maybe they were doing something a little different. But this show never phoned it in every week. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the evolution of Walter White, uh, the lead character in the show, sure. uh, is absolutely it is his storyline uh, and the way that he uh, and his partner interact and form this, uh, you know, this meth lab uh, and how they end up becoming involved with the uh, the cartel and all the local gangsters. And here he's this very mild mannered um was it a biology teacher, a physics teacher, something like that in high school? And, uh, you know, but he's, or maybe a chemistry teacher. That's what it is. Cause he, he right. knows how to basically make it. And, uh, it's amazing watching how his character changes. Uh, and I remember when the show first came out, I completely missed the boat and I had people going, Oh, you gotta watch this show. You gotta, and I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, why do I want to watch this show by drug dealers? I mean, I work in the freaking court system. <laughs> I see, I see drug dealers in the, in the court system. It didn't really have my interest at that time. And then somebody said, no, no, you got to, I don't remember who it was, said, you got to watch this show, do yourself a favor, watch one episode and, and you'll see if you get hooked. And I did. And holy shit, I was completely wrong. I don't like to say that very often, Barry Rose, you don't. but I completely, I was wrong. I missed the fucking boat. And when I started watching the first episode, I think literally I had watched maybe four or five seasons within a week uh, because I got that hooked on it. The performances are uniformly amazing. Uh, the uh, direction and, and the work and the writing by Vince uh, Gilligan is amazing. And it's great because, you know, we have talked before about how so many storylines here are, 
have bled into Better Call Saul, yes. which is you know technically a prequel, but there's little things that'll have like kind of Easter eggs, and you'll go, oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, you know when that happened uh, in Breaking Bad. You know they they do that in Better Call Saul, and it's part of what makes Better Call Saul so interesting. And uh, it's really amazing to me to think that I can enjoy it. Uh, people younger than me can enjoy it. My mom sits with my sister. And they watch Better Call Saul and they watch Breaking Bad. And that some, I mean, you know, my mom is, I'm not going to say how old she is, but uh, do the math that, you know, literally it's something that spans the generations of, of people that can sit and enjoy this incredible story of how this man was, was basically corrupted. Uh, and he, he went into it with such good intentions. He was diagnosed with cancer and he wanted to do something to uh, benefit his wife and son. Yep. At, so that they would be protected if he something happened and he was gone, and just the way that that you know a, that grab for money ends up corrupting him, bear. Yeah, and it was you know it was sad as well because he uh, you know it, again going off the early episodes, here was a guy that uh, financially you know he's a teacher, chemist at school, he's not making a lot of money by any stretch. Finding out that he is he's only got so much time to live and he gets involved to make this extra income. And I believe his son had cerebral palsy on the show. But he did a lot of this because he wanted to help his wife. Of course, through the course of the story, he and his wife are no longer together by the end, which does make you know kind of sad in a way. And it's not breaking bad is not a feel good show, right? It's not a show you're going to watch and go, oh, this, I feel so happy, but it was a great character study. And, and I, I think Brian Cranston, and look, Brian Cranston has been around Jeff since probably we were kids. This guy, you know, this guy was the he's dentist. Tim Watley, Tim fucking Watley. The, he's the anti-dentite. He's the, he's the, the converted to Judaism dentist <laughs> right. on Seinfeld, but also he was the father on the, uh, uh, Malcolm in the middle there. Huh? A speckle of fluoride. A, a speckle, exactly. <laughs> so he was, uh, but then he was the father on Malcolm in the Middle for years yes, as well. That's right. Here's a guy that's been around, and then he lands this role. They hand him the ball, and obviously he's scoring touchdown after touchdown with it. So uh, just highest recommendation. So next, Barry, from 2014 to present, another show I will say I've never watched the TV show. Huge fan of the movie that it was based on. Barry Rose, we're talking Fargo. Are you a fan of the television show? Absolutely, Jeff. And I think I recommend it. I don't know if we did this on air or off air, but Fargo is exactly in your wheelhouse. Fargo is, oh shit, what's that? You asked me and I answered. Now I'm going to ask you the show with uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, D- Detective. True oh, uh, True Detective. True Detective. Fargo is almost identical in some ways. And in some ways, I don't want to say it's better because that first season of uh, True Detective with Harrelson and McConaughey was by far the best. Uh, But at the same time, Fargo has just had some great storylines. It's very similar every season, different cast, different storyline. And it doesn't even all take place in Fargo. It could be places near Fargo. So for you, I highly recommend it. But a tremendous, tremendous television show. So here's some quick stats, Barry, uh, during their run. They have received 228 award nominations, of which they have won 51 out of those 228, including 18 primetime Emmy nominations, uh, an additional 27 
awards from the Creative Arts Emmy for technical or similar achievements. Others awards, they include 10 Golden Globe Awards, 14 Critics' Choice Television Awards, and 44 Online Film and TV Association Award nominations. So, yeah, that's a pretty high bar that's been set for Fargo. Uh, Barry, I definitely think I need to put this in my wheelhouse. Yeah, and this is what I would tell you to do as well, is that, look, if you even watch the first episode of the first season, you're going to be hooked. So this is not something that I think you have to watch a couple episodes till it grows on you at all. One episode, you'll go, fuck yeah, I'm in. And, uh, you know, just to show how diverse the uh, each year is and different, uh, didn't they have one year where Chris Rock was like the lead character? Yeah, that was this past season, which I guess is six, eight months ago. I don't remember the exact time frame. And that was really interesting. And I, I forget where it was taking place. It, uh, it, again, it wasn't Fargo. It might have been Minnesota uh, or it may have even been Kansas City, which I don't think is anywhere near Fargo. But uh, Chris Rock, you know, and Chris Rock at this point is probably, you know, famous now for getting his face slapped on live television by Will Smith, but Chris Rock is a guy, he's a comedian, he's funny, he's a funny guy, uh, you know, it's, this is not, this role completely dramatic. Jada Pinkett no Smith humor. did not think he was funny on one particular occasion. I'll I'm tell you gonna, what, I'm yeah, just going to put not, that out there. Do not make fun of alopecia to women who have it. As and Actually, good rule of thumb, don't make a uh, Good fun. rule of thumb, <laughs> I Look, got that. It's all the cough syrup, all right? <laughs> Good rule of thumb, don't make fun of uh, a woman's shortcomings, whether it's weight, age, hair, whatever, especially on live television, though apparently it was her husband, uh, but that's a whole other story. In any case, watch Fargo. The season with Chris Rock was my least favorite. It was still fantastic television, though. All right. Next up, Barry, from 2015 to present a show that we just started talking about when we Uh-oh. were mentioning Breaking Bad. We're talking Better Call Saul. So, Barry Rose, I'm going to put it out there. I want I want you to make a decision. Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, which one did you like better? <sighs> not fair, only because— I don't—I'm not being fair, mister. I know, I know. So, because I'm currently wrapped up deep in, uh, in Better Call Saul, I'm going to go that route. I will say— Bob Odenkirk is a, a stronger lead than Walter White than Brian Cranston, and realize what's that's how what that says actually. You know what? That's that's a big statement right there. Bob Odenkirk is at a different level of just about anybody else, and he's got a, a movie. It's on HBO, Nobody. I think. Nobody. Did you watch that? Oh, it's great. It's great. And I mean, here, so Bob Odenkirk, who I think we knew for years as being a comedian, not a tough guy, kind of wimpy, maybe in some ways. He's a writer for Saturday Night Live. Exactly. And Conan, I think, wasn't he a writer on Conan, too? Yeah. Here is a guy that convincingly plays a badass and convincingly like he's like legitimately a badass in this movie. Nobody high recommendation for that film. I believe it's on HBO if you haven't seen it. Yeah. And so many great characters and the interaction. And it's funny because like we said, this is a prequel to what happened in uh, Breaking Bad. But here when they created this character uh, who was essentially like a a little bit of comedy, a little lightheartedness and all the stuff that was going on, uh, the deaths, the murders, the brutality of, of Breaking Bad. You had Saul Goodman, who was this light character. Uh, this kind of Weasley attorney never saw any of those in Broward County. Just want to say that, oh, Barry. No. Yeah. But 
And it shows you the relationship that he forms with another attorney named Kim Wexler that becomes essentially the backbone of this show. Uh, Kim Wexler uh, played by, uh, I believe her name Rhea is Rhea Seenhorn, right? Yeah, Rhea Seenhorn. And she is fantastic. And the character is so beloved, the Kim Wexler character, maybe even more than Saul Goodman and uh, and Jimmy, uh, what's his name? Jimmy McGill, McGill that... There are people basically as the show begins to wind down at the time we're recording this, as it's winding down, I think it's got maybe like five more episodes left there. If even, yeah. And people are saying if they basically kill off Kim Wexler, there's going to be riots in the streets because that's how much people love the character of Kim Wexler and what she means to Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman and her performance. I did notice Barry, that uh, the nominations came out very recently yes. in the last week or so. She's finally nominated for an Emmy for Best Supporting Actress. Well-deserved. Well-deserved, and she's got uh, she's got the entire universe of Better Call Saul behind her, including Bob Odenkirk, who all are basically saying, you know, this woman has to win. There is a rumor out there currently. Rumor, uh, scuttlebutt, innuendo. Yeah, and we don't know if any of this is true, and I, I can't tell you, but that there will be another spinoff, and it's either going to have Rhea Seahorn in it as the lead, Kim Wexler, or Giancarlo Esposito, or both. So okay. let, let's hope that they don't kill her off. She is a – I think she's a, a future valuable, especially if you put her and, and Esposito together. I mean you and I will be watching this, Jeff. That's for I sure. read – I don't know if it was the same article. I read – an article that speculated that the, uh, you know, and no spoilers here because I don't know if this is true or not, but that the end game for Kim Wexler is you will find out that although she was not on screen in Breaking Bad, that she will be end up being the attorney of record for uh, for Gus uh, for Gus Frank. Wow. Uh, and uh, that's where her character is going to end up, that although she's never brought up on screen in Breaking Bad, uh, that's what's going to happen is that she's the, uh, the the drug kingpin's lawyer of record, and she continues her slide down into the uh, the dark abyss of the drug trade and representing a drug dealer. Next, very uh, just such a great show. Uh, I, and since I ask you, I'll point at this point, and you're right, uh, recency bias. I, I couldn't love Better Call Saul any more yep. than I already do. It's just a fantastic show. Uh, next, Barry. 2013 to 2015, a three-year run. Did you ever see the great Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal? No, I've never seen an episode, which is kind of odd because I fucking love Silence of the Lambs and Manhunter. And Mad Mikkelsen was uh, he was a bond, he was the Bond villain in Casino Royale. Uh, great actor. I've actually seen him in a couple different movies uh, where he's played a character role. Uh, you know, I have to put that out there to the brothership. Anybody a fan of Hannibal? I've read nothing but positive things about it. Uh, nominated for tons of Emmys, Saturn Awards, Critic Choice Awards. Uh, so yeah, so uh, I have, have to ask someone in the group if they're a fan of that particular show. Next, Barry. I know you're a fan of this show. Uh, Eight-year run on HBO, Barry, started in 1999, ended in 2007. Oh, Barry, that Journey song started playing, and they faded to black on The Sopranos. All right, bring on the hate, Mark Russ, Ben James, and everybody else on the west coast of Florida. I like The Sopranos, and as Mark pointed out clearly to me last week, he said – because I, I always tease Mark about uh, about not liking Tom Petty, which I still find completely mind-baffling. But Mark said uh, 
is something to the effect of, yeah, I don't like Tom Petty, but how do you explain your your dislike of the Sopranos? Or I forget exactly what he phrased, how he phrased it. With that, I like the Sopranos. I thought it was a interesting and good TV show. I'm not part of the cult or the the fan club where they say this is the greatest TV show of all time. I think the acting was at a different level. I thought sometimes the storylines were just, I don't know, slower moving, not at the pace that I wanted them to be at. But I will say from an acting standpoint, couldn't have gotten any better with James Gandolfini, that's for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I've i seen one episode of this show. And like you, I have friends, uh, you said like the cult-like, and that's almost what oh, it yeah. is. I mean, there are people that are crazy about this show. And, uh, you know, again, running the entire gamut, this is not just a show that guys like or or that, you know, like a older audience likes or a younger audience. This is like every from eight to 80, like the, or were a part of the cult of the Sopranos. I watched the first episode and like you, I went, eh, it seems like a good show, but it wasn't like, holy shit, I need to devote like the next uh, month of my life to doing nothing but power binge watching, uh, you know, the, the Sopranos. I enjoyed it. I know that there are people that, like I said, are incredible fans. James Gandolfini, great actor. Yes. Uh, never forget him as the uh, as the hitman uh, that yep. was, uh, went to kill. Uh, uh, what's her name? I'm, why am I? Arquette, Patricia Arquette. Yes. Uh, in True Romance. And that, yeah. one of the greatest fights in the history of cinema. Oh, that fight in the bathroom, man. It was fantastic. But I know James Gandolfini, of course, as Tony Soprano. So great in this show. And if you're a fan, you don't need to explain yourself. I, I mean, I completely get it. So uh, next, Barry. Now, here's another show. Again, one one episode I watched, okay? And this maybe it's because it's a, more of a British-centric uh, TV show. 2013 to 2017. Maybe we'll reach out to our friend John Lee and ask him uh, if he was a fan of this show. Barry, did you ever watch, I'm talking Broadchurch? No. So I've never even heard of Broadchurch, Jeff. But with that, too, my understanding from my good friend, Sweet Lou Kippelman, Scam Likely, this is a British show uh, that I. It's almost I like guess, I mentioned that, but go ahead. It did. <laughs> it's almost, <laughs> my God, go figure. It aired on the BBC. And as Sweet Lou pointed out to us uh, privately, that this Fox actually did, I guess, an Americanized version with the same actor. I, I believe he said it was David Tennant. Uh, but with that, I think it was just one season or even less. So it never took off in this country. Have you seen this show, Jeff? Uh, again, like I mentioned with Peaky Blinders, this was a show that I watched one episode of. Okay. Uh, and it was in that group where I was trying to decide where I was going uh, for the binge watch. And uh, I watched this. Uh, it was a good show. Uh, no complaints about it at all. As I said, a bit on the British centric side, but uh, very positive reviews. Uh, it's it's basically about a murder in a small beachside community. I know that. And uh, this guy comes in kind of a quirky detective that is a stranger to the town, but trying to solve. I believe it's the murder of a, of a child, uh, you know, maybe in like uh, I'm looking here, uh, an 11 year old uh, Danny Lattimore is killed and investigating uh, team goes into trying to trying to find out what the heck happened there. So uh, by, I have heard nothing but good things about this. Uh, again, maybe we'll reach out to uh, those of you out there in the UK that are fans of this show, and you can tell us what you've thought about it. Barry, next, a show that you and I have raved about. Uh, haven't used that word in a while, Barry. Raved about. From 2014, 2019, I will say, number one, best season by far was the first season. 
they did three seasons. However, I told Barry recently, I don't know if it was on air or off air, that they are going to do a season four that reportedly has Jodie Foster in the lead, Barry. I'm talking true detective. Again, I, I, that was such a revelation that first season uh, with Harrelson and McConaughey and the chemistry between the two had me hooked forever. Uh, they stumbled a bit in, uh, in the second season, I think redeemed themselves with, and I can never pronounce his name. And I know sweet, sweet Lou, how do you pronounce uh, Ali's first name? Mahershala. Mahershala. This guy was a revelation, Jeff, right? Like, yes, remember, no, I remember us talking and going, where did he come from? And like, is this is acting also at a different level. And he has such a great presence. Um, and Jody fucking Foster in season four, they really know what they're doing. I'm super excited for that. Yeah. First season with Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey was very dark, very disturbing details of the case they were investigating. And, uh, you know, but it just, it took you, I mean, here's not, not to keep rehashing something, but I, I say this word before it took you down a rabbit hole and you certainly, uh, you know, much like Alice in Wonderland, man, you, you, uh, you started going down that rabbit hole and you didn't want to stop because you wanted to see where it was going to end up. And it is absolutely said that the one season, that first season of true detective might be one of the best seasons of television yep. I've ever seen. Yep. And, uh, you know, as you said, season two, which starred, uh, Rachel McAdams, uh, I believe in, uh, Colin Farrell. Yep. Uh, you know, that was, uh, it was not a horrible season. I, it, it's sort of like when we talk about Godfather three, that's it. And Godfather exactly. three is, it's not like a horrible movie. It's just like when you compare it to Godfather one and two, it just seems to pale in comparison so much. And season two of true detective was not a bad, necessarily a bad season, but just compared to the first season, it just, it just wasn't nearly as good. So it just comes off as like, Oh, what a complete failure. No, I don't think it was a complete failure. It just wasn't as good as season one, which might've been one of the greatest seasons of television in the history of, uh, of any TV show season three, as you said, uh, Mahershala Ali and Steven Dorff, uh, were in that one, uh, great acting and sort of, uh, but a redeeming nature to the show, uh, was just excellent stuff. Uh, don't know when the season four with Jodie Foster is coming up, but, uh, Barry, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, too. And that's you also bring up a good point with that as well. Uh, Mahershala Ali, as we we talked about, was great. But it, talking about the second season, it, it's kind of like, did you ever see uh, and, and I'm a big horror movie guy like Halloween three, Jeff and how do you know it, season of the witch? That's it. And I love it. And this movie, when it came out, bombed and it was it received a lot of hate. And only the last few years has there been this resurgence where people are kind of uh, going, you know, this is actually a pretty good movie. And I had the chance a few months ago to sit back and watch it again. And I love it. It's fantastic. The problem you run into, it has nothing to do with the Halloween theming, right? Yes. It, yes. Other zero. than the title has nothing to do with Michael Myers nothing. or anything like that. Yeah. And I think everybody went to the theater and w was expecting well, this has nothing to do with Halloween and Carpenter wasn't involved. So it was completely different in hindsight. It's a great movie. And I think you look at the second season and had this been called anything uh, under a different name, uh, it would have been fine. But I think the expectation of that first season of True Detective with uh, McConaughey and Harrelson, that expectation for the second season had been set really, really high. 
So, okay, that is the end of the list. So, Barry, tell me right off the top of your head, as you're thinking, tell me a show that they forgot that should have been on this list. Well, Law and Order, and that's what we were talking about. And I don't, again, I don't know if Law, I don't know if we're going to break it into SVU versus regular and whatever the other ones are. But Law and Order, uh, I think, you know, I, I think it may be the most prolific television show uh, in the history of TV. Based on it's been on forever, they they brought it back. I mean, the original Law and Order was done, and they actually brought it back. And while it doesn't focus necessarily just on crime. Uh, I guess it does, though. You know, you could say the crime takes place, then it goes through the judicial system, et cetera. Uh, I don't know how you could admit that. So the one that jumped out to me that I would have put on here is Boardwalk Empire. Uh, you, you know, we, we talked about Chalky White and stuff like that. And uh, uh, Steve Buscemi as uh, was it Nucky? Yeah, Nucky. Yeah. And that was just such a great show that I enjoyed so much that uh, uh, that's the first thing that struck me. I, yeah, I got to be honest with you. I really don't watch a lot of network television at this point. Most sure. of the stuff I watch is HBO, uh, Showtime, uh, Netflix, Prime, whatever. And uh, that was the one that immediately, especially, I guess, because we started talking about Michael K. Williams, that's the one that uh, popped up in my head. It's like, I can't believe they forgot, you know, Boardwalk Empire. So, so you, the listener, what show do you think belonged on this list of best crime shows since the year 2000 that has not been talked about? What did we miss? What did this article on Collider miss that you think should have been on there? All right, Barry, episode 253, now in the books, about ready to take it across the old finish line. Uh, Barry, next episode, oh my God, you're going to be back in PA, my man. It's going to be a brand new episode with all brand new content. Uh, you'll have to hear all my food stories. So this this should take hours, no doubt. But uh, also the lovely Linda and myself are taking this trip together. So uh, Ozzy will be there to chaperone, correct? Ozzy will be there to chaperone, which will be nice. But uh, Portillo's, Culver's, all of our usual spots I plan on taking Linda to so she can go. Are you nuts? And how many, uh, what's the over and under on weight gain for the, uh, the time you're in, uh, the, uh, Tampa area. Is that for me or for Linda, which uh, I would never ask for Linda. Right. That would be rude, but you, I feel free to ask. I, uh, so I'm about 170, which is good at my lowest. I was 157 this summer, which was, uh, COVID related. I'm 170 currently. I wouldn't mind even being 175. So if I can do five more pounds, I'm in. So you now uh, we will expect you on episode 254 to come All back. Right. And truthfully, because I'm a former clerk of the court, I can swear you in. That's true. Uh, you, will you tell us whether you went over your five pound expectation or stayed under? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, will yeah. you be honest? More importantly, hundred yeah, percent. It's uh, sketchy. I got to be honest. I, I am a little sketchy, but about this, I'll be honest. On that note. I will remind you, Breaking Gay Fable about Drew Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Why am I raising and lowering my voice like this? I don't know. Take it home, Melissa.